Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Pastor Dave and worship team for leading us this morning, leading us so well into the presence of God. Amen. Good morning, Grantham Church. So good to see all of you, and if you're visiting with us, welcome. My name is David Flowers. I'm a senior pastor here at Grantham Church. We've come to the final message in our 12-week summer series, Saints and Sinners. And in this series, we've given attention to various biblical characters whose lives were a lot like ours, messy and broken. And through their stories, we've seen how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past, our sins, and our struggles. And folks, this is true. It's true. According to the Scriptures, the Lord will bless us and work us into His redemptive story if we will surrender our lives to Him. And we've seen that over and over each week in this series, as we'll see this morning, through the story of the Apostle Paul. It's the grace of Jesus that makes faith and faithfully following the Lord possible. Who was Paul? If you've grown up in the church or you're even somewhat familiar with the New Testament, then you know that Paul is known as an apostle and really next to Jesus is the most important figure in early Christianity. While he wasn't a part of the original uh, 12 disciples of Jesus, he was a sent one, that's what apostle means, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and plant churches all over the Roman Empire. Paul pins 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. His letters expound upon the meaning of the gospel, uh, particularly the cross and the resurrection, about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures, about how God's eternal purpose is seen through the church. And he discusses uh, healthy church practices. He gives pastoral guidance on Christian ethics and living, as well as how to navigate internal challenges that arise in the church. Furthermore, Paul writes on the Christian's relationship to the state and to culture and to the world around us, as well as our call to fight a spiritual battle with spiritual armor, and he helps us to imagine what the return of Christ will be like. So as you can see, Paul's influence is huge, and it's, um, it's been quite significant on the church. Uh, but before he was known as the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. In Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything that I did. Cilicia was a, a Roman province in modern-day modern Turkey. And Gamaliel is mentioned in Acts 5 in the Sanhedrin's decision about Peter and others who were preaching the good news about Jesus. You may remember that story. Gamaliel said, leave these men alone, right? Let them go. 
it, before, because if, it, it's, if it's of God, um, it, it can't fail. If it's of human origin, it will fail. You won't be able to stop these men if it's of the Lord. And you'll only find yourselves fighting against God. This is the guy who taught Saul of Tarsus. And notice, Paul said he was zealous to honor God. We're going to come back to that because it's a word he uses several times in his writings. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul speaks of his, his upbringing. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he says to the Philippian church, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. He said, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. Let's go back to the top of there, verse 5. Uh, circumcision was practice, uh, practice required by the law for devout Jews. He's saying, I was devout. I follow the, the letter of the law. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. This was known for its mighty warriors. Remember, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, the very first king of Israel. It's obviously where Saul of Tarsus got his name. The Pharisees were the largest religious order in the first century. They were viewed as priests, as lawyers, scribes, interpreters, and gatekeepers of the law of Moses. They were the guardians, or you might say the shepherds of Israel. Jesus will take issue with that because they're not doing their job, and he will say, I am the true shepherd, not these other guys. And look at verse 6. Saul says, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. Remember, he said that earlier, I was zealous. This is what his zeal did. It drove him in showing his passion for God to persecute God's people. At least that's what he eventually discovers. He says, and as for righteousness, that is covenant faithfulness, that's really, I think, the way we should understand this word in the New Testament. We're not talking about moral goodness. We're talking about faithfulness to the covenant. He says, as far as that goes, I obeyed the law without fault. I was the best of the best. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I was the best. And then in verse 7, which I don't have on the screen for you, but you can look at that, he says, but whatever gains were gains to me, right? Whatever I may have accomplished, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He actually goes further and says, it's all, it's all rubbish. It's all garbage. It's all, I could think of other words there. Just insert them. That's what I think Paul is saying. That's, how, that's what all that equals to. I'd rather know Christ, him crucified and resurrected. I don't care about all that other stuff. This is really going to come clear to us today uh, as we look at the writings of Paul. So how did Saul of Tarsus health, uh, harshly, that is, persecute the church, as he says? Well, we first see Saul in Acts chapter 7, uh, where he's present at the execution of Stephen. You may remember Stephen was a disciple, a chosen servant of the church, a diakonos, the Greek word, there in Acts 6, to help care for widows and the poor. He was, the scriptures say, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. It also says he was full of God's grace and God's power. He was arrested by the Sanhedrin because he not only was preaching the gospel of Jesus, but he had also done great signs and wonders, that is, miracles among the people in Jesus' name. And so Acts 7 tells us, and I've got the reference there on the screen for you, that Stephen gives a lengthy defense in his sermon 
that reveals Jesus to be the fulfillment of Israel's story and of the law and of the prophets. And of course, they think this is just blasphemous. And so the text says there in Acts 7, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. That is with rocks for you young people. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats, it says, at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul of Tarsus is there overseeing this persecution. In Acts 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And then Acts chapter 9, when Saul is on his way to hunt down more Christ followers in Damascus, you remember this scene on the road to Damascus, he has an encounter that changes him forever. Verses 3 through 6 says that as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. And he said, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And we learn that Jesus has gone ahead of Saul, if you remember the story, by speaking to a disciple in Damascus through a vision. And he wants this man, Ananias, to receive Saul, who is now, of course, temporarily blinded from the light, right? Blinded by the light. There's a song about that. Um, to help him, Ananias is going to help him in these three days of blindness as Jesus fully converts his heart and his mind. And Ananias is understandably a little hesitant about this because he's heard about Saul of Tarsus. He's heard what the Pharisees are doing against the Christians. And so he, um, he's hesitant, as I said. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, the Lord says to Ananias, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument, to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And this is, this is huge, of course. This isn't just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And I will show him how much that he must suffer for my name's sake. Listen to those words of Jesus. So Saul, who will soon go by his Greek, his Gentile name, because he's an apostle to the Gentiles, he'll go by his Gentile name, Paul, when ministering to non-Jews, will give himself fully to the Lord, surrender to his calling, and be the apostles, we said, to the Gentiles. Paul's ministry will last about 30 years. Here's a timeline of his ministry. I know that some of that's too small for you to see. Later on, you can go and uh, open up the slides at our website and look at that more closely. This timeline here begins with Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, to his, and it goes to his death in Rome under the emperor 
Nero. Things got really bad under Nero, and Paul spends the uh, last year or so of his life under house arrest in Rome before being executed. And then during this 30 years of ministry, as I said, he wrote 13, that's almost half the books of the New Testament, and some of them even from prison while he's in chains. And he actually tells us that a couple of times. And he planted during this period about a dozen churches across the Roman world. You can see I'm kind of summing up his life here because we're going to rest on a couple of passages that Paul has written about God's grace here in just a moment. So Saul, or Paul, does this uh, over 30 years. He takes three major apostolic trips out of Antioch, which sort of becomes the Gentile hub of Christianity. Jerusalem is the Jewish center, and Antioch is the Gentile center. You've probably seen a map something like this before. You've, you have a study Bible, flip over to the back of your Bible, you probably have a map like this that shows these three apostolic journeys. And this is the Roman Empire, and so Paul is going all over the known world preaching the gospel, planting churches. And while he did sail a few times, you can see that, it's depicted on the map, he relied heavily upon the Roman roads to do this. He went to centers of power and of culture, places saturated with idols and places that were loyal to Rome, like Philippi, which we already read from the book of Philippians, which was a Roman colony. It was full of Roman patriots. And Paul there uses more than any other New Testament book politically subversive language that you can imagine was why he got so harshly treated and, and, and taken outside the city and stoned and left for dead. And so Paul was fearless in this way. In Acts 15, he goes to the Jerusalem Council somewhere around 49 AD, and uh, he discusses his ministry among the Gentiles. And you remember, this is the first major council of the early church where Paul is defending his ministry to the Gentiles talking about this vision that he's had from Jesus and what Jesus has commissioned him to do. But a lot of the Jewish Christians are having a hard time with this because they feel like these Gentiles, especially the males, ought to be circumcised and they ought to act Jewish and all of this. And if you know the book of Galatians, and you can read that later this week, Paul has some fiery words and language in that book. And this comes right after the Jerusalem council. He even mentions his feud with the apostle Peter, who he disagreed with on something uh, there at the Jerusalem Council. So I encourage you to go read that. There, there Paul is, of course, uh, saying that, um, no, we, we, we don't submit ourselves back to the Mosaic law. Jesus has shown us something new. And this is this idea of grace, which we'll get at in just a moment. He's combating this idea that Gentiles must embrace the law of Moses and their Jewish customs. And so Christianity officially becomes a Gentile movement there in Acts 15. And the heart, as I said, of Paul's ministry and message was this good news about God's grace. And that's what I really want us to think about this morning when it comes to Paul's ministry in his life. A message that was undoubtedly formed by his own encounter with Jesus. And you probably have this verse memorized, especially if you've grown up in the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now, who else would know that but Saul of Tarsus, now the apostle to the Gentiles, right? That it's by grace 
that you've been saved. Look, he goes on, he says, this isn't by works. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor, right? If we, if we all deserve anything, it is death and hell, <laughs> right? But Paul is saying that's not what any of us get. This is the gift of God. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. Therefore, you can't boast about it. You can't boast about it. He said, we're all God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, again, let's think about this. What is grace? This grace is God's unmerited favor. You've probably heard that before. Unmerited favor. And it makes salvation possible. It makes going from a sinner to a saint possible, right? We access it by faith, that is, trust in God, and we simply receive it as a gift. There's nothing we can do to achieve or earn it. And then look at verse 10, though. We need to be clear about this, right? Because James even said this, that faith without works is what? Let me me say it again. Faith without works is dead. So works is involved in this, but notice what Paul is saying. Right, works is it's it comes out as, as a display of God's handiwork. That means we are his poema, is the word that's used in Greek. We are God's poem. We are God's masterpiece, as the New Living Translation says. We are created in God to do good works. But this is a result of God's unmerited favor upon our lives. You see, the, the, the works of, of the Spirit, we call the fruit of the Spirit. Paul said this to the church in Galatia. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence that you are encountering the grace of God in your life. If you're not manifesting the evidence of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then chances are you've not encountered the grace of God. You know, we've got a lot of Christian Pharisees in the church today that simply operate by law in every letter of, and jot and tittle of the law, but haven't really embraced the message of God's grace. Therefore, they are not growing in Christ's likeness. They make good Pharisees, but poor Christians. Amen or oh me? (laughs) This is true. Dallas Willard once wrote, Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. And this message of grace was too much for some Jewish disciples who had not fully understood the implications and the effects of what Jesus had done on the cross and what he had revealed about God. The Old Testament law shows us that we can't keep it. Yes, it also shows that God is holy and we are unholy and that we need a Savior. And Jesus has come to give us that. And how Christ shed new light and understanding on on the Old Testament, this idea of grace. And it seems that Paul even surmised that some of these so-called disciples, we've, we've referred to them as Judaizers, didn't even really know Jesus. You can pick up on his frustration with them and their accusations and, and attempts to undermine his ministry in Romans chapter 6. Would you turn there with me? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And then here in a minute, we'll flip over to 2 Corinthians if you want to hold your place. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. You can tell here, and the epistles work a lot like this, that you get one side of a phone conversation. And sometimes through scholarship, we can piece together the other side of that phone conversation. And we know from all of Paul's writings that what he is 
What he's challenging here are the accusations made against him that his message of grace, especially the accusations of the Jewish Christians, uh, that his message of grace is somehow saying that it doesn't matter how you live, that holiness doesn't matter, uh, that, that walking in the way of the Lord doesn't matter. And so Paul is responding to this accusation. And this is what he says in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 1. Well then, what, what should we say? Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? This apparently is the accusation. You're telling people that they can just go on sinning because we have God's grace. God has forgiven us. God is merciful. I can just do whatever I want. And Paul says here, and I'm reading again from the New Living Translation, of course not. If you've got the NIV, it says what? By no means. In the Greek, and I'm putting this nicely, it says, heck no. This is not what I'm preaching. This is not the message. This is not what grace means for us. Since we've died to sin, look what he says. How can we continue to live in it? Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Jesus Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? This is why we often say, and, I, and of course the tradition I grew up in, when we baptized folks, they would go into the water and say, you're buried with Christ in baptism, like a symbol of dying with Jesus, raised to walk in newness of life. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, remember your baptism. Those of you who've been baptized, remember what that stands for. Remember what it's symbolic for, this sacrament. We joined him in his death, for we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. This is one of the uh, things that the early Anabaptists in the 16th century charged the mainline Protestants for, the, the, the magisterial reformers for. They said, you're not going far enough. You're not taking the teachings of Jesus seriously enough, right? We, we don't just rest in grace. We walk in resurrection life. Let me say that again. We don't just rest in grace. Grace propels us, enables us, motivates us, inspires us, drives us to embrace and live in resurrection life. Verse 5, Paul said, since we've been united with Jesus in his death we will also be raised to life as he was. And Paul, as he said other places, this resurrection life has already begun in us in an inward way. One day when Christ returns and we see the physical, literal resurrection of the dead, it will overcome our whole bodies. But for now, it's happening in an inward way. And God wants us to participate. As he'll tell the, Thessalonica, uh, the Thessalonian Christians that you should work out your salvation partner with God in becoming like Jesus. You're not uh, automatons. You're not robots. God doesn't force himself upon you. He wants you to join with him in becoming like Jesus. What enables it? Grace. Grace enables it because you're going to stumble over and over again. As I say, you know, how are you doing? You're following Jesus? Yes, I'm stumbling forward in Jesus every day. And he said, and lastly, in verse 6 and 7, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And, and, th and this is really what Paul is getting at. It's what Jeremiah said when God would establish a new covenant. Remember, we talked about uh, Jeremiah in this series. Establish a new covenant to be written where? On your hearts. 
How? By the Holy Spirit, through God's grace, by grace, through faith in Christ, a new way. You see, we don't just obey the law, we supersede the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we trust the Lord Jesus living alive today within us to guide us and direct our lives, to convict us when we are out of line and out of step with the way of Jesus, with the way of Jesus. So we trust not in the law, but in the Spirit. Amen? I think the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may know him, he gets at what Paul is communicating in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, and he called this cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Our age needs to hear this, folks. It's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living in in the incarnate. And, And so what is real grace? Bonhoeffer goes on. He says real grace is costly grace. Think about this. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Now we're talking about all people here. Remember he's writing in the tw- or, uh, mid-20th century. Such grace, he says, is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person their life. Listen to this. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And again, what Paul is saying is that cheap grace doesn't get us anywhere. We continue to live in sin. We don't take working out our salvation seriously. We want forgiveness without repentance. We want God to become like us rather than us become like him. But grace enables us to do this, to follow Jesus, to take up our cross, to repent of our sins. So listen to what I think Bonhoeffer and Paul are both saying here, that God's grace is free. But when it is being received, and that is being received, something we do over and over, it liberates us in time from sin. We can't continue to walk in it. You see, while God's grace meets us where we are, His grace does not leave us there. Hallelujah. He accepts us as we are, but He does not leave us the way that we are. And you know, you've received the genuine costly grace of God when it produces the fruit of the Spirit in your life, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth and so on, right? That's what he says in Galatians chapter 5. And it drives us to persevere with an eye toward Christ-likeness. Another way to put it is we are not lax in following Jesus. We are determined. This is the message that Paul took to the Corinthians. His, his longest letters were written to the church of Corinth. And Paul spent 18 months in Corinth teaching, preaching, and planting the church there. And Corinth was a prominent city in Greece, a thriving city for trade and commerce. And therefore, the new converts in the church there were, 
uh, facing a great deal of challenges. Uh, idolatry was rampant. You think of this Greco-Roman setting. There's competing ideologies. There's sexual morality in the church that Paul addresses there in 1 Corinthians. Uh, drunkenness, divisions over who their popular teacher was, and so forth and so on. And, and after this time there, he wrote two lengthy letters to the Corinthian church, First and 2 Corinthians, we know it. The first letter addressed all the issues that they're facing as a church. And the second letter, Paul expresses his joy at the report that he hears back. It's a, it's a hard letter to read, 1 Corinthians. And Paul, is, he's direct and he's straightforward with them, how they need to live into their calling as saints. And that's what's really interesting because what comes out in his letter to the Corinthians is these folks are definitely sinners, but Paul calls them saints. And saints means holy ones. And he calls them to to repent of their sin and live into the new identity and calling that Christ has given them. And so he's happy when he hears this report back that they are doing that. And so in the second letter, Paul expresses his joy and he addresses more issues and reminds them of the authority that God has given him as their spiritual father. This is why Paul is so invested in them. He's poured his life out for them and he wants to see them become a mature church. Once again, it appears that Paul was dealing with the Judaizers, or what he calls super apostles, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's there in that chapter that Paul takes up a, a sarcastic tone. Some of you will appreciate that, you sarcastic people in the room. Right? Some people can appreciate sarcasm, good sarcasm. Uh, Paul utilizes sarcasm as he addresses their concerns and, and, uh, and complaints that he is not as polished and as accomplished as those who oppose his preaching of the gospel. Because what would happen here, and you can imagine the frustration with Paul, is that once he left a city, after investing his life and preaching the gospel, teaching the way of Jesus, this way of grace, it wouldn't be long, and here would come some of these Judaizers, these super apostles, to come in and say, let us tell you why you shouldn't listen to Paul. So you can imagine why this is so frustrating to Paul, the apostle. The other teachers from Jerusalem, as well as philosophers in Greece, they, they had these l nice long resumes to prove to people, this is why you should listen to us. I mean, we're, we're the educated, the educated, and, and we have this, this long resume of, of things that can prove it, to boast about our credentials. And this was a common practice in the Greco-Roman world, and so... Paul says, oh, oh, okay, so you want to hear some boasting. You want to hear some boasting. Well, first of all, I don't agree with the idea, Paul says, but I'll boast. I'll boast for you. And he reminds them that the way of the cross is foolishness to the world. He tells them that his opponents are deceitful workers and false apostles who masquerade, that is, pretend to be good people. They believe themselves to be good people, but they're just like their real father, the devil, Satan, who masquerades as an angel of light. And then Paul lists his credentials by describing his sufferings in detail. He says, I have worked harder. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. This is Paul saying, those are my credentials. This is my curriculum vitae. And this is how it reads. And, and, and he really is calling us into this kind of way of thinking. 
this kind of way of Jesus. And so with that context, if you would, now turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the last scripture we're going to rest on here. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Now remember, he's talking about these Judaizers. He's talking about these super apostles trying to undermine his work. And he says, my authority is based on Jesus having appeared to me. Remember, because he wasn't original, one of the original 12. And he says, my credentials are all of the suffering that I've endured. And he gives us that in detail in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, he says, this boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, in that time period, in that world, the Jewish world, this is the greatest thing that you could do. You know, like this is the trump card to throw out a mystical experience with God. And the greater this story, the greater weight and authority one would have. And so Paul is going to do that. But look, look how he tells it. He says, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. If you're reading an NIV or in some other translation, he may have slipped into the third person here. Uh, why is he doing that? This is actually a Socratic practice, one that the Greco-Roman world would have been familiar with. And Paul is putting distance between himself and in this experience. And then what is the third heaven? This is a, it refers to a rabbinic tradition that taught there are multiple realms. This is the realm of paradise. This is the place where Jesus told the thief on the cross that he would be with him after they died. Paul is saying, this is where I went. He says, I don't know if I was in my physical body or not when I had this experience. Only God knows. Verse 3, he, only God knows whether I was in my body or out. And then verse 4, I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. And Paul had not told about this until this point. That experience, he said, is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would, be, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth, but I won't do it. You catch the sarcasm here. Because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Again, Paul is saying, my credentials are the sufferings of Jesus. You want to know who's on the side of Jesus? Look and see who's suffering with Jesus. You want to know who to listen to, the voices to listen to, the voices of truth? Look who's suffering like Jesus. Look whose ministry looks like Jesus' ministry. You see, we go after the flashy, don't we? We go after the stage, the sage on the stage. We, we want signs and wonders, just like they did in Jesus' day. But Jesus comes in the small things. Jesus comes in the humble things. Jesus comes in people like Paul who don't speak very well, can't impress people like their teachers of the law and their philosophers. And look what Paul says here in verse 6. He said, I could go on boasting, but I won't. Verse 7, even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan. A messenger from Satan. Now, now, look at this. A thorn in my flesh. Today we might say a pain in my neck or a pain in some other place. Notice his thorn is 
authorized by God to keep Paul humble and reliant upon the Lord. And a messenger from Satan, he says, this indicates that Paul ascribes the pain of it to Satan, but its usefulness in his own spiritual formation and ministry, that is credited to God. Let me say that again. The pain of it and where it's coming from is from Satan, but its usefulness is credited to God. I want you to think about your own situation. We'll come back to that. In other words, his thorn in my flesh is a sign of God's grace in Paul's life. He says, three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. Your translation may say, my grace is sufficient. My power works best in weakness. And so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Paul's saying, I have figured out the economy of God. I have figured out how it works. I boast in my weakness because I have learned that God's strength is made manifest and made perfect. And God gets a whole lot more out of me and does the work of the kingdom in my weaknesses. That's why I boast in them. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses, verse 10, and in insults, hardships, persecutions, troubles that I suffer from Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you're probably wondering, what is this thorn in the flesh? Yeah, the church has been talking about this forever. I grew up with tradition always talking about this. What do you think Paul's thorn in the flesh was? Well, the word flesh here, sarx, uh, in the Greek, can mean physical body, so maybe something in his physical body, but can also refer to, you know, what the New Living Translation says, the sinful nature, the, the part of us that isn't in submission to Jesus, the dark side of all of us. So, you know, you may wonder, well, what's he talking about? Many have speculated on what Paul's referring to in this verse, ranging from physical issues. We know he had eye problems. At one point, we can tell someone else wrote his letter, and at the end, he said, I signed this in my own handwriting, which appears to be much bigger in the Greek. So we know he had eye problems. Maybe that was it. Some have speculated and said it, Paul suffered from ep epilepsy, or maybe an inability to speak well was always a hindrance in a, to him. It shows up here uh, in the letter to the Corinthians, right? He acknowledges, I don't speak well. You, you listen to these other guys because they're polished. Maybe that was it. Or maybe it's some psychological malady like anxiety or depression. I mean, if you were thrown in prison and stoned and shipwrecked and snake bitten and so forth and so on, how would you feel? So maybe it was this. Maybe Paul struggled with his temper. Remember, uh, he and uh, uh, Barnabas uh, uh, didn't get along, and they part ways over John Mark. They disagreed about John Mark because he had abandoned them on one of their trips. He said, no, I'm not taking the guy. You can tell him to stay home. Maybe that was it. Or maybe he experienced tormenting temptations to yield to sexual desires. As far as we know, Paul was single, as Jesus was. By the way, that's not a disease that needs a cure. It's a holy thing. It's a holy calling. We don't need sex to be fulfilled as human beings. But still, maybe Paul dealt with that temptation. It could be a number of things. Now, my personal opinion is that if you look at the chapter before, he's talking about the super apostles. You, you, you look at the book of Acts, 
and the challenges that he encounters there over and over again. You, you read the book of Galatians. Who are the people that keep showing up? It's these people seeking to undermine Paul's ministry. I think based on the context, the best bet is that Paul is saying his thorn in the flesh are these super apostles. I mean, I can really think as pastoring now over 20 years that the greatest pain ever caused me are from people in the church. People who are on your team seeking to undermine what you're doing. Have you ever experienced that? Loved ones in your family or friends? I mean, I can think back earliest memories to junior high, this kind of thing happening. There's nothing much more painful than this. So I can easily believe that this is what Paul is talking about. However, however, maybe the Spirit inspired Paul to keep his thorn ambiguous for us. Why? Well, so Paul's words can become an invitation for us to see our own thorn and our own pain in the you-know-where to be a form of His grace at work in our lives. Why? Paul says, to keep us humble and not proud so that we will remain close to the Lord and dependent upon His strength and dependent upon His power, which is known, Paul said, fully and seen most clearly in our weakness. In other words, and I want you to think about your own. What comes to your own, your own mind when you think about the thorn in my flesh? What is it? In other words, God doesn't remove that. Because without it, you would forget your need for His grace. The pain of it can be from the devil. Like a fiery arrow from the evil one, as another apostle says. But its usefulness can be from God. And isn't that the way of the cross? Isn't that the way of the kingdom? See, we would fail to see that we are all sinners in need of a Savior if it wasn't for our thorns. And because of his thorn, Paul saw this very clearly. Listen to what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. He said, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And this is a posture and an attitude that Paul wants us all to embrace. I am the chief of sinners. And for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience is an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Oh, church, how different, how different the name Christian would be if we loved people like this, knowing that we are all in need of God's grace. None of us can be the judge. And in summary, here are some lessons and takeaways from Paul's story that we see. Number one, we all, I think, need encounters with Christ, as Saul of Tarsus experienced, that reveal Jesus' holiness, that reveals our own sin, and God's grace for everyone. 
And, and, and maybe that's it, because, you know, you can't give away something you don't have. If, if you've not come into the light of God's holiness and seen yourself for who you really are, to see how holy God is and what a sinner you are, and then, then, don't just stop there, then experience God's grace, how can you give it? You can't. And see, that's the thing. The Pharisees, and I said we got a lot of them in the evangelical church today, right? The Pharisees, they don't want to get to that place. They don't want to succumb to this work of the cross. But as Christians, as disciples, we must. Come into God's holiness. See our sin for what it is. Experience God's grace so that we can extend it to others. Another point here, be zealous for, for God. Saul of Tarsus was zealous. He had zeal, but look what it drove him to do. Why? Because he didn't see the God who looked like Jesus. And when he did see the God who looked like Jesus, it changed his life. From Saul, the persecutor, to, to Saul or Paul, the apostle. So be zealous for the God who looks like Jesus because misplaced zeal leads to idolatry, it leads to hate, and it leads to violence. How much do we see that at work in our world from people who hold up signs that Jesus saves? It is misplaced zeal. Zeal toward a flag, zeal toward a party, zeal toward a candidate, zeal toward a political agenda. You can fill in the blank. If the zeal isn't directed toward the God who looks like Jesus, it's misplaced, and it's only a matter of time it will lead to hate and to violence. And Paul knew this better than anybody. Another point, God's grace saves us. We can see that. For by grace you've been saved, right? It sustains us. It turns sinners into saints as we live out our faith. And this, folks, requires us to submit ourselves in community, not run away when it gets hard, not run away when the church experiences difficulties, not run away when you hear messages that don't quite sit well with you. Be careful. It may be challenging your flesh. Not to run away when it gets hard. Not to shy away and retreat in isolation like so many people are doing today. But rather stay in the fellowship of believers, in the community, so that we can work out our salvation. We are like living stones, Peter said, chiseled so that we could be fitted together in the building that God is making. We also see that God's power works best in our weakness. I want you to think about that this week. How can you see the usefulness and the thorn in your own flesh? And of course, better than all the others, Paul, we see, was a saint, but also a sinner. Here's some questions for us to reflect on as we enter into a time of invitation. Can you see yourself in Paul? And if so, in what ways? How do you see yourself? What kind of experiences did Paul have that you can you can relate to. You might also ask yourself, uh, do you still believe that God can change people like this? He can change the drug addict. He can change the alcoholic. Do you see them the way God sees them? Do you see yourself the way God sees you? Number two, like Paul, we all have a thorn in our flesh. Will you accept that God's grace is enough for you?
Maybe you're thinking, I've pleaded with the Lord, take it away, I don't want it. Folks, I resonate with that so much. But for whatever reason, the Lord leaves it there in your life. It's time to see the pain of it is from the evil one, the usefulness of it from God. Let the Lord use it as an act of grace in your life. And then lastly, number three, as you reflect on the Saints and Sinners series, how is the Spirit inviting you to respond in faith? You think back over these 12 characters. How is the Spirit speaking to you? What does the Lord want you to do in taking the next step in your faith journey? as a sinner, but also a saint. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for these stories. And there are so many more we know of in the scriptures who you used because they submitted to you. Lord, help us to do the same. Help us to take up our cross and to follow you. Help us, Lord, to embrace the economy of the cross and of the kingdom that says that your strength and your power is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, more than anything else, maybe this morning we ask for your, your power, your strength, to accept the truth of this message, that you've left those thorns in our flesh to humble us, to recognize our need for grace, and to extend that grace to others. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said.